It's Tuesday, the 15th of November, and welcome to Career 24. I'm your host, Wang Jiangwu. In their first face-to-face meeting as heads of state, U.S. President Joe Biden told Chinese President Xi Jinping that if North Korea escalates tensions further, the U.S. will have to take action to protect itself and its allies. We'll have more details in our news briefing shortly, and we'll further dissect the outcomes of the much-anticipated meeting for our in-depth day as well. And then coming up on Touch Basin's Hall, we'll be meeting the Korean-American actor and singer who's currently starring as Eliza Hamilton in the smash hit musical Hamilton on Broadway. Let's begin Career 24. Well, since you assumed the presidency, we have maintained communication via video conferences, phone calls, and letters. But none of them can really substitute for face-to-face exchanges. We share responsibility, in my view, to show that China and the United States can manage our differences, prevent competition from becoming anything ever near conflict, and to find ways to work together Those were remarks by Chinese President Xi Jinping, followed by U.S. President Joe Biden on Monday as they began their first face-to-face meeting since Biden took office and as tensions between the two powers have been on the rise. The U.S. leader later said he pressed Xi on North Korea and the need to discourage further provocative acts, adding Washington may be forced to reinforce its defences in the region otherwise. For more on this and our other headlines of the day, we're joined on the line by KBS World Radio News Editor Eunice Kim. Eunice, hello. Hello. So the two leaders, at least in their opening statements, appear to show a more conciliatory tone. Uh, Talk us about what was discussed, particularly on the point of North Korea. Yeah, sure. We've been uh, told U.S. President Joe Biden and Chinese President Xi Jinping would confer on where their red lines were given these tensions that the world is sitting in right now. And this, of course, comes as the U.S. president is energized by a better-than-expected midterm election result back at home to his party's favor and the Chinese leader emerging from a major Communist Party Congress where he secured an unprecedented third term. Now, following their three and a half-hour sit-down, President Biden attended a press conference and indicated to reporters that the conversation was frank, that they understood each other, as she was straightforward with him as he has been in the past. They had met as vice presidents under previous uh, leaders Barack Obama and Hu Jintao. Here's his response to a question on whether China can control North Korea's behaviors. First of all, uh, it's difficult to say that I am certain that, that China can control North Korea, uh, number one. Number two, I've made it clear to uh, President Xi Jinping that I thought they had an obligation to attempt to make it clear to North Korea that they should not engage in long-range nuclear tests. And I made it clear as well that if they did, they, meaning North Korea, that we would have to take certain actions that would be more defensive on, on our behalf. We are going to defend our allies as well as American soil and American capacity. And so, uh, 
But uh, I do not. Biden, they're explaining that the U.S. would have to beef up its military presence in the region should North Korea keep up its provocative weapons testing, including that recent test of a long-range ballistic missile uh, that presumably would hold nuclear weapons that was being designed to threaten the United States. During the meeting, she stressed that for it, for China, the Taiwan question is at the very core of its primary interests, calling the matter the first red line that must not be crossed in China-U.S. relations, Washington and Beijing remaining at odds over key issues ranging from Taiwan and Hong Kong to human rights, trade and technology. Right. It doesn't seem like they came out of this with any uh, meaningful commitments as such, but uh, the hope is that it would contribute towards a dialing back of tensions, at least. Yeah, that's right. And President Biden, in answer to another question, did say that he does not think they are at the verge of a second Cold War and that he does believe President Xi Jinping is willing to compromise. Uh, This does come, of course, as China and Russia have taken consistent opposition so far this year to joint action at the U.N. Security Council to denounce North Korea's unprecedented barrage of missile launches in 2022. They had initially supported toughened sanctions after North Korea's last nuclear test in 2017. Yes, we'll further unpack the outcomes of this meeting later in the show for our in-depth today. Uh, Meanwhile, world leaders engaged in various discussions at the Group of 20 summit today. And President Yoon Sang-yeol urged countries to refrain from excessive protectionism in the food and energy sectors. Can you tell us more? Yes, according to the presidential office, Yoon made that appeal during his address at a session on food and energy security in Bali, Indonesia, noting how G20 members had taken part in South Korea's proposal for a freeze in trade and investment barriers during the 2008 summit, stressing the importance of global solidarity and cooperation in responding to threats to food and energy security. President Yoon said South Korea will actively take part in such efforts as a responsible member of the international community. He also called for the establishment of eco-friendly and sustainable food and energy systems and a stronger focus by the G20 on developing and sharing innovative green technologies to assist the world's green transition. The president also met host leader Indonesian President Joko Widodo earlier, I understand. Yes, also known as Jokowi in Indonesia. President Yun on Monday telling President Jokowi that their two nations are seeing active follow-up cooperation in various high-tech industries, such as electric vehicles and batteries, infrastructure and defense, after a bilateral summit held in July in Seoul. He also proposed the advanced cooperation in digital education, smart city, digital finance, as well as clean energy, underscoring that South South Korea has optimal suitability as Indonesia's partner for its Making Indonesia 4.0 strategy. Meanwhile, President Yoon is engaged in a summit meeting with China's President Xi Jinping that began this evening. We'll bring you more on the outcomes of that first face-to-face tomorrow. Indeed. Let's turn to some domestic issues now. The number of new COVID-19 cases continue to rise in a concerning trend. Eunice, can you run us through the latest daily numbers? Sure. So daily new case loads 
soared above 70,000 for the first time in two months amid this winter resurgence of the pandemic. The KDCA saying it detected 72,883 infections throughout Monday, including 50 from overseas. The number of critically ill hospitalized patients are at 412, while 39 more people have died of COVID-19. Uh, shifting gears, in its investigation into the Tejangdong land development scandal, prosecutors are questioning Chong Jinsang, a close aide of the main opposition Democratic Party uh, chairman Lee Jae-myung, on bribery allegations. So can you update us on this situation? The Seoul Central District Prosecutor's Office did summon Chong, who heads the party chair's policy coordination office, Tuesday morning in relation to his suspected involvement in the Taejangdong land development scandal. He is accused of receiving a total of 140 million won from key figures in the scandal between the years of 2013 and 2020 in return for business favors while serving as a key policy official in Seongnam City and Gyeonggi province. Now, Chong has flatly denied all the allegations against him, but observers of the legal sector believe the prosecution will likely seek an arrest warrant for him after one or two more rounds of questioning. In other news, Britain's antitrust authorities have raised concerns of the planned merger of South Korea's Korean Air and Asiana Airlines, indicating a possible market. Monopoly, can you tell us more? Yeah, that's right. This is the UK's Competition and Markets Authority saying in a statement on Monday that the buyout of Asiana by Korean Air could lead to higher prices for passengers flying between London and Seoul, also raising concerns regarding the impact of the deal on competition in cargo services. The antitrust regulator requested Korean Air to produce and submit measures to ease these concerns on a potential market monopoly by next Monday before the CM decides whether to accept the measures or launch an in-depth second phase inspection by November 28. That's all for our news briefing today. Thank you for those updates. You bet. highly anticipated face-to-face meeting between the leaders of the world's two superpowers took place on Monday on the sidelines of the G20 summit in Bali. They met for nearly three hours discussing a wide range of topics including Taiwan, North Korea and Russia's invasion of Ukraine. To analyse the outcomes of this meeting at this critical juncture and what it signals for the future, we have two guests joining us on the line now. First, we have Professor Chu Jiu from the Department of Chinese Studies at Gyeonggi University. Professor, hello and thank you for joining us. Hello, thank you. And we also have Professor David Arase from the Hopkins Nanjing Centre of the John Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies as well. Thank you for your time, Professor Arase. Oh, thank you for having me. So, Professor, let uh, get your initial thoughts on this summit. Professor Chu, let me start with you. Uh, it was yes. the first time that President Joe Biden and Xi Jinping were meeting as heads of state. How significant was it? What do you think about the timing of it as well? Why do you think it took place now? So, I think uh, it's uh, 
it, it, it was held at a very critical juncture, especially following the two magnificent, you know, political events in respective country in the United States and China. The United States, they just had a midterm election uh, where, you know, Joe Biden and his party uh, came out to be a winner, and it was a surprising turnout. And for Xi Jinping, uh, he he got re- elected uh, to the, you know, chairman of the party leadership for the third term uh, in recent times. And also uh, for him, it is the second time traveling abroad, and I think he's uh, maximizing this opportunity to uh, get you know summit meetings as as many as many summit meetings as possible mm. uh, for the Chinese own interest and good. Sure, you said it was a crucial juncture. Uh, what do you think mm. the two sides were looking to gain from the summit, and do you think they got what they wanted? Uh, I think uh, they got. I didn't really get what they wanted, but the purpose of the whole summit was to uh, to confirm, verify the differences. And, in the position of respective country leaders holding on, on critical issues and try to understand where they're coming from with these uh, differences. And also, at the same time, I think uh, we got a little uh, uh, elevating message from uh, President Biden when he said uh, he saw some issues where the compromise can be pursued and sought uh, between the two countries, uh, but he didn't really specifically you know, went into these, uh, what these, what these issues were, but, you know, he left a hopeful message at the end. Mm. Uh, Professor Arase, what about you? What were your key takeaways uh, from the summit? Well, I think it was important that they met because, you know, after the, um, you know, the August 4th to 7th uh, exercises around Taiwan, following Pelosi's visit there, um, Discussion and contacts have been sort of cut between the two sides, and there hasn't been a normal dialogue. So this marks a resumption of not just top-level dialogue, but also, uh, you know, down through the ministerial and working levels, uh, there's going to be a renewed dialogue between the two sides, and that communication is important. I I don't think their fundamental differences have been resolved, or maybe not even narrowed, but what they what they're doing is they're trying to um, set up a procedure and, and a way of communicating so that they don't inadvertently fall into conflict, and, and that in itself is something to be you know <clears throat> to to be applauded. Mm. Uh, the issue of Taiwan was perhaps the most sensitive, as you mentioned. Tensions uh, particularly escalated in August when the U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi visited Taiwan, to which uh, Beijing responded by launching a series of military drills near the island. Uh, in Monday's meeting, the two sides were reportedly quite firm on their stances on Taiwan. According to the White House, Biden told Xi that the U.S.'s one-China policy had not changed, but he raised objections to China's increasingly aggressive actions towards Taiwan, which he said undermined peace and stability across the uh, Taiwan Strait and the border region. Xi, on the other hand, according to Chinese state media, told Biden that the Taiwan question was the very core of China's core interests and that uh, the first red line, it was the first red line in vital ties that must not be crossed. Mm-hmm. Professor Arase, what do you make of the statements and where do you think it leaves the Taiwan issue now? 
Well, I think it leaves it where it was before. I don't I don't really think they've changed their positions and in a sense they're talking past each other. Uh because uh what one side means about the status quo in the one's trait, it doesn't meet the understanding of the other. So um, it's uh, it's a difficult situation. The, the reality here is that the balance of power has changed. China is now in a position to challenge the U.S. for strategic dominance in the region, political dominance, economic dominance in the region, which it's doing. And so this new in this new situation the old basis of their understanding about taiwan that is the shanghai communique signed back in 1972 when china was poor and backward and the us was an advanced uh, you know a, a, a basically a unchallengeable uh, strategic actor well that 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 understanding is obsolete today and so and yet they still base their respective positions on that outdated uh, communicate. Mm. So, so it, it, it's in this sense that they're talking past each other, and uh, I don't really see how uh, you know the differences can be compromised or reconciled. Professor Chu, what do you think? Yes. Where do you think we stand on the Taiwan issue? Yes, I basically agree with what Professor Arce said. Uh, I cannot, you know, add any more, or you know, I cannot disagree. But at the same time, what we should really uh, be uh, paying close attention to is uh, what these leaders are uh, saying to the domestic audience. Uh, Xi Jinping usually following after the you know party congress, he would, he would make a visit to uh, military bases and try to rally up the troops, saying that you know uh, Chinese troops should be ready for any contingency and must fight for win. And whereas uh, President Biden and, and U.S. Congress over the year has introduced so many bills related to Taiwan issues, and these bills pertaining to Taiwan issues were not passed and become a law. However, you know, they were reflected in the Defense uh, uh, Appropriation Authority Act, and we could expect uh, uh, the United States providing more weaponries and trying to build up, you know, uh, reinforce the Taiwan fortress against China. And I think uh, that's going to drive the two nations to be really sensitive about the uh, respective moves in the, in the domestic political front. Mm. Okay, let's move on to North Korea now. Uh, Biden reportedly told Xi that China has an obligation to urge North Korea to act responsibly. Uh, speaking to reporters after the meeting, though, Biden also said that uh, while he's not certain that China can rein in the North's escalatory actions, including a nuclear test, he said he is sure that Beijing does not want Pyongyang to further escalate regional tensions with provocations. Uh, Professor Chu, were you surprised at all by Biden saying that he's not certain that China can rein in North Korea? It's not usual mm -hmm. for a U.S. president to admit something like that, is it? Yeah, I think uh, this uh, general mood and uh, I think this... Uh that's the consensus in Washington that has recently built after all those years of uh, dealing with North Korea and China. And hopefully, you know, I think uh, that, that that could be a nice first pitch to China uh, with the way that the United States wants to press China for to to draw some constructive responses from China over the you know, nuclear 
possible tests in North Korea or the you know continuing uh, provocation by North Korea. And I think uh, it's, a, it's a very good move on, on behalf of the United States. And they know the history that, you know, if you press China a little bit harder, then it's going to uh, subsume to the pre- pressure and make a move on North Korea and try to bring North Korea to the, you know, discussion table. And that has been the, the case in the past. So I think uh, he's throwing the first pitch to Beijing uh, on this occasion. Uh, so you think he's putting pressure on Beijing uh, rather yeah. than perhaps, uh, could it not be considered a concession as well, perhaps giving a sort of a China a free pass? If North Korea does escalate the situation, uh, it allows China to say, Biden saying he knows that China can't perhaps rein in North Korea. Yeah, yes, that, that, that could be it too. But, you know, it's, it's kind of, you know, insulting to the you know Chinese leadership and not giving face to the Chinese leaders yeah. uh, because you try to discount their, you know, their past efforts and what they claim to have, you know, constructively involved in the, all these discussions and six thoughts and so forth, you know. So uh, undermining their, you know, past efforts and, you know, uh, giving a little, uh, right. a, a little, yeah, uh, face-losing a statement to the Chinese face, and, you know, that, that, that could, you know, work the other way around. Mm. Professor Arase, what do you make of the comments, and what role do you think China can play in deterring North Korea's provocations? Well, I think, um, you know, China-U.S. relations are so delicate that uh, one, one thing, one complication I think Biden might want to try to avoid is the the imposition of sanctions on Chinese companies that violate the UN Security Council sanctions on the North. Uh, that's something the U.S. has done uh, quite a bit of in the past. And the U.S., in fact, probably could uh, identify a number of Chinese firms to sanction right now. But I think what Biden is saying uh, with that statement is that they're not going to do that as sort of a concession to some of the things China has uh, conceded on in other areas. But, you know, it, it, it still remains a fact that uh, both Russia and China are blocking action in the U.N. Security Council against the North, even though, you know, the other 13 members of the Security Council have all denounced the North for its missile firings. Hmm. Uh, it's China and Russia acting together that are blocking uh, any sort of punitive action against, uh, against the North. So, and there's no doubt there's more China can do to pressure pressure the North. But I mm. think um, I, I think Biden's just being cautious at this point. Um, and uh, and who knows what's actually going on in terms of uh, discussions right now between the U.S. And, and China on the North Korean issue. After all, they've just started. They've just resumed talks. Mm. So you know there there may be some agenda items in the bilateral talks about the North that they want to explore before they before they start arguing about the North. Right. What if North Korea does escalate tensions, perhaps uh, carries out uh, the long-mooted seventh nuclear test or maybe uh, more ICBM missiles? Uh, How do you think the U.S. will react uh, when it comes to their relationship with China as well? Do you think there's anything more that uh, they can do to push uh, China? Well, so what what China doesn't want to see is closer uh, triangular relations between the U.S., South Korea, and Japan. And certainly North Korea doing that would, would produce just that result, just the thing that China doesn't want to see. 
and further, you know, nuclearization or proliferation on the peninsula raises the whole question of, you know, whether or not South Korea or Japan should now, you know, since since non-proliferation has failed, right, and and, and since the possession of nuclear weapons and and the way that, that Putin is using them, for example, shows that nuclear weapons. Uh, can be used for coercion and that they are needed for deterrence. This is an argument for South Korea and Japan to nuclearize, you know, to go nuclear. And that's something China doesn't want to see. So, you know, those, you know, self-interest is the strongest mm-hmm. motivation for China here. It's just that China has been short-sighted in trying to exploit uh, the North's um, uh, nuclear weapons issue to try to break the U.S. alliances, but instead it's had the opposite effect to just strengthen them. And now, now mm. China is, in a sense, trapped by its past actions. Okay, finally then, looking ahead to the big picture, uh, Professor Chu, what yes. do you think the uh, Biden-Xi summit means for relations between the United States and China from here on out? Uh, Reuters reported that while the two clashed over Taiwan, Cold War fears have cooled. Would you agree? Yes, I, I definitely agree with the statement there. Uh, but looking ahead, you know, let's not lose hope here because uh, I, I, I wonder what's in the what's in the bag of Biden's. You know, well, what kind of goodies are there? You know, I'm still hoping that he could uh, introduce some of the you know good stuff uh, when the time is right. When he, especially you know regarding his remarks that you know there could be something that that the two countries could compromise, he saw hopes there. And, you know, I'm hoping that there's some some really, uh, you know, the goodies that we can appreciate in the bag. What kind of goodies do you think might be in the bag? I don't know. I don't know. To be frank, uh, you know, I uh, I can't really make any case uh, here. But uh, my sense of feeling is that apart from, you know, climate change and, you know, all these non, non-traditional security issues such as, you know, food security and, and some other economic related issues uh i'm hoping that more some more, uh, more of something substantive uh perhaps a mm, second trade agreement between the two countries or you know some kind of mm. security dialogue uh for for the you know not only taiwan strait and south china sea but also with respect to the korean peninsula or something like that something that will get the you know region moving to the you know multilateral dialogue frame again and Professor Alasay, what do you see for the future of U.S.-China relations? The White House announced that the Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, will make his first trip to China for further talks sometime early next year. What do you think that visit could be about? Well, you know, there's a new, there's a new team, right, in, in, in the foreign ministry. Uh, running, so he's got a new counterpart. And... Uh, you know, U.S. Uh, diplomats haven't actually been in Beijing for an awful long time. So it's quite useful to have face-to-face meetings with uh, the top levels of uh, decision-makers. Uh, all that's quite necessary. And, uh, of course, he'll be bringing a big entourage of officials with him, so they'll have, um, you know, a new set of, of, of relations with their counterparts in Beijing. And all that is is to the good. I, I'm not sure exactly that this new round of talks will do any better than the previous rounds of talks, you know, that have gone back decades now. Uh, but um, uh, nevertheless, you know, talking and trying to manage differences is much better than not trying to do that. 
Okay, we'll leave it there. We'll be speaking to Professor Chu Jiehu and Professor David Arase. Thank you both for your time today. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Welcome to the Korea 24 Stock and Forex Update. The benchmark Korea Composite Stock Price Index rose 5.68 points, or 0.23% on Tuesday, closing the day at 2,480.33. The tech-heavy Kosdaq also rose, gaining 15.42 points, or 2.11%, to close at 744.96. On the foreign exchange, the local currency strengthened 8.31 against the dollar, ending the day at 1,317.61. You can check Korean stock and forex closings at world.kbs.co.kr. We carry on now to our daily segment, Korea Trending, looking at some of the other news stories that have been trending online today. And for that, I'm delighted to say that we are joined by Diane Yu, a contributor from last week who we all be working with on a more regular basis. Yes. Diane, hello and welcome. It's great to have you with us again. Hello, Jango. Thanks for having me. Okay. So let's get into our stories then. What do you mm-hmm. have for us? First, we'll take a look at news of the retail giant Amazon's possible plan to lay off thousands of employees. Next, we'll take a look at why Incheon Metropolitan City will place over 1,000 polyethylene drums on the shoulder of Incheon Birch. And we'll end today with the story of the release of the 2023 edition of Seoul's Firefighters Hope Sharing Calendar to raise money to treat burn victims. Okay, so let's start with that big news coming out from the retail and tech industries. Can you tell us more? Mm -hmm. The world's biggest e-commerce giant, Amazon, is planning the largest job cuts in the company's history. According to the New York Times on Monday, people with knowledge of their matter said the company plans to lay off approximately 10,000 people in corporate and technology jobs starting as soon as this week. According to the report, the cuts would primarily focus on Amazon's devices organization, as well as its retail division and human resources. This comes after the company stopped hiring new talents in several smaller teams in September this year. A month later, its core retail business took a hit as the company stopped filing more than 10,000 open roles. And just two weeks ago, the company decided that corporate hiring will be halted for the next few months. Okay, so why is this happening? Hasn't Amazon performed well in recent years, particularly during the pandemic? Mm -hmm. Uh, It's because prolonged global economic slowdown has simply made it difficult for the company to maintain its employees. The pandemic led to the e-commerce giant's most profitable era on record as consumers and companies moved to its online shopping and cloud computing services, respectively. Amazon doubled its workforce from 2019 to 2021 and reinvested its profits into expansion. However, Amazon's outlook for the rest of this year does not seem so promising. In Mm. fact, its fourth quarter results are expected to fall far below expectations. As a result, the stock price plummeted and the company's market capitalization also fell below $1 trillion in 31 months. I see. Now, this uh, drastic cutting down of manpower seems to be a bit of a trend in the tech sector at the moment. It follows suit with some other big tech 
giants, right? Mm -hmm. Amazon's massive job cuts are in line with other tech companies as well. Just last week on November 9th, Meta said it will cut more than 11,000 jobs or 13% of its workforce. Also, the ride-sharing company Lyft laid off 13% of its employees, which is about 680 earlier this month. Not to mention Twitter, the social media company has laid off 3,700 people, half of its total employees, right after it was acquired by Elon Musk. Although Apple and Google have not reached mass layoffs yet, they have decided to not hire for the time being. Yeah, so ominous times for the tech sector mm-hmm. in the US. Let's uh, move on to our second story now. Uh, what do you have for us? According to the office of Ho Jong-sik of the main opposition Democratic Party, operators from Incheon Bridge announced Monday their plans to install 1,500 new polyethylene drums on Incheon Bridge to prevent passersby from stopping on the shoulders of the road. The installation will begin on the 17th, and LED safety lights will be attached to the drum to secure visibility during late-night hours. The number of Patrols will also be increased from 24 times a day to 26 times. Okay, so why are they trying to prevent people from stopping in the middle of the bridge? So the decision to block the shoulder of the roads comes after three people died from a fall in three consecutive days from the 4th to the 6th of this month. Incheon Bridge is the longest bridge in Korea with a length of 21.4 kilometer, connecting Yeongjong Island, where Incheon International Airport is located, and Songdo International City. Since it first opened in 2009, accidents have continued to occur. According to Incheon Bridge's own tally, a total of 65 falls have occurred since its opening, resulting in 54 deaths. From 2016 to 2020, the number of falls was between 2 and 5 each year, but jumped to 11 in 2021. And this year, a total of 20 people fell off the bridge, resulting in 16 people dying, which is the highest number ever. Right. We're trying to be tactful, but we are unfortunately talking about uh, people who are apparently taking their own lives mm-hmm. by jumping off. The remote location, the low barriers, uh, the deep waters seems to be the reason why people drive up this mm-hmm. far. But placing the drums, they cannot it cannot be the silver bullet to prevent uh, these incidents from happening, right? Of course not. Along with placing drums on the side of the road and increasing the frequency of patrols, a trilateral meeting will be held on the 23rd of this month with Incheon City, the Coast Guard, and the Incheon Suicide Prevention Center to discuss ways to put a halt on such tragedies taking place on the bridge in the future. Lawmaker Ho Jong-sik pointed out that, quote-unquote, installing the drum is only a temporary measure and added an additional budget is needed to install proper fall prevention barricades, which are a fundamental solution. Yes, yeah, so it looks like investment is needed to install such barricades, mm-hmm. but that could be quite costly as, as you said, this is the longest bridge in Korea. Right. But it looks like it will have to be necessary uh, to stop these tragedies from happening in the future. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's move on to our last topic of the day, and it is a much more light-hearted story, I understand, yes. Diane. So Seoul citizens can mark the dates next year with a new calendar featuring muscular firefighters. The Seoul Metropolitan Fire and Disaster Headquarters announced on Tuesday it is selling calendars again this holiday season, featuring the most physically sculpted Seoul firefighters to raise money to treat (laughs) burn victims. Uh, Fifteen firefighters participated as models, and South Korea's top photographer, Oh Jung-seok, donated his talents to the project named the Hope Sharing Calendar. For the 2023 
Three edition. There are two types, including wall-mounted one and those for your desk. And the price is set at 11,900 Korean won per copy to symbolize 119, an emergency telephone number for firefighters. That's around 9 US dollars, and the price excludes the shipping cost. Okay, this is a charity project that's been going on for several years now, right? Mm -hmm. Since 2015. More than 95,000 copies have been sold over the past eight years, and the proceeds from sales and donations amount to 880 million won. That's around 665,000 US dollars. And a total of 229 severe burn patients received treatment through this project. Yes, such calendars uh, have been around for a long time in the West before, of course. But when uh, Korean firefighters first produced them, there was a bit of a culture shock, shall Mm -hmm. we say. But uh, they have become a popular annual tradition in Korea as well now. Yes. So uh, where can we buy them? So you can order it online at GS Shop and 10x10, or you can also visit 10x10 Taeyangno branch and get it right away. They already started pre-orders online from November 9th, which are planned to be delivered from November 16th. The city government said the calendars will be sold until January 19th next year. So if you're up for a good deed and need a calendar to mark the dates and plan ahead, you've still got time. Okay, that's going to be all for Career Trending today. Thank Mm -hmm. you for those stories, and we'll see you next time. See you then. On this week's Touch Basins Hall, we're joined by Stephanie J. Park, a Korean-American actor and singer based in New York, as well as releasing an album called Fire to My Air as part of the music group Saffron Lips earlier this year. She's also starring on Broadway currently. She is playing Eliza Hamilton in the smash hit musical sensation Hamilton. And to tell us about her story, Stephanie J. Park herself joins us via video now from her... uh, dressing room. Ms. Park, hello. Thank you for coming <laughs> on the show today. Hi, thank you for having me. Yes, it's a pleasure to have you with us. Uh, I gave a brief introduction, but can you tell us a little bit about yourself for our listeners? Sure. My name is Stephanie J. Park. My Korean name is Park Joo-hee. Um, I live in New York City. I was born and raised on Guam. Um, and I'm coming at you from the middle of Times Square, basically, so I, I hope there's no extra noises, but I'm coming at you about 45 minutes after my show in my dressing room, and I'm excited to just kind of dive in with you. Sure. For our YouTube uh, viewers who will be seeing this interview, uh, they'll get to see uh, what your dressing room looks like, uh, what the uh, yeah. backstage of uh, Broadway looks like. Uh, so let's talk a little right. bit about your story as well. I understand that uh, you had a, a love of music from a, a very young age and that you, in fact, mm-hmm. come from a musical family. Yes, yeah. So I am the youngest of three daughters. I have two older sisters, and my mom and dad were very musical. Um, in the very first opera on Guam, my mom played Mimi in La Boheme. And she was like a huge star for us growing up. They were very involved in the symphony chorales and always the church choir conductors. And so music is kind of my third language, I would say. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's, it's just kind of in, in my being. I, I learned how to read music when I was learning how to read English and Korean, you know. So I feel very grateful to have this background. 
Sure, and perhaps of, due to your mother's influence, I believe you originally studied opera, uh, but then you switched yes. to musical theatre, right? Mm-hmm, that's correct. So uh, uh, what made you choose musical theatre? Well, uh, a couple things. I Opera will always be my first love. I love opera. I love to go watch opera. Um, I just could not choose <laughs> which genre of music I wanted to do, honestly. Mm. Um, and musical theater is quite all-encompassing. There's classical musical theater, and then there's pop, and there's, you know, there's this, which is hip-hop, there's rock. Um, and from a young age, I, I wanted to be as free and unlimited in my choices mm. as a singer. Mm. Yeah. And I also wanted to act and I wanted to dance. Those were things... I think um, classical muse, classical singers also act, of course, but I, I wanted it to be equal, and I used to dance a lot as well, so I didn't want to give up that part of me as well. So that's why I chose musical theatre. Sure, and then uh, you forged a career in musical theatre, and you've now ended up playing Eliza Hamilton in uh, Hamilton, which is probably the most exciting and the mm. most successful uh, musical uh, in the last uh, 10 years or so. Can you tell us about uh, how you landed the role and uh, what it felt like to, to, uh, to take on this role? Sure. So back when Hamilton came out, maybe in 2015 or so, um, a lot of my friends were telling me, you have to be in this show. <laughs> you have to play Eliza, specifically. And it's funny, I was a little bit resistant to it only because it was so popular and I was like, you know, I was kind of resisting the popular trend. <laughs> but then I watched it and I listened to it and I was like, oh, this is very, very good. And it's very successful for a reason. Mm. It's, I think it's historical with, when it comes to musical theater. Um, and so when I changed from an agency to a manager, I told them that everyone tells me I should be in Hamilton but I've never auditioned for them, you know, maybe I should, I should. So that was my very first audition with this new manager, and um, I got it. <laughs> I got a standby track, which is to understudy the three main uh, female characters in the show, um, and then just kind of worked my way up through the different companies and to now be now playing Eliza on Broadway. Sure. I'm sure a lot of our listeners will be uh, familiar with the musical, but can you uh, tell us a little bit about it? You said it's a, a hip-hop musical, right? And can you also tell us a little yes. bit about your role, Eliza Hamilton? Sure, yeah. Hamilton is this very singular, um, very cool, <laughs> if I may say so myself. It's a hip-hop musical. Basically, um, it takes a lot of familiar hip-hop references and it's a story about Alexander Hamilton who was one of the founding fathers of America. So a lot of the characters are like George Washington is our first president, Thomas Jefferson, uh, well I guess we don't have a John Adams but it's it's a story about the history of America mm. which is so nerdy but then told through hip-hop and um, in both dance and music and so the dancing is very contemporary um, the characters are played by a very diverse cast. It's mostly it's mostly non-white, especially when it comes to the characters. Um, and my role, I play Alexander Hamilton's wife. So I play kind of the, in my head, she's the emotional equivalent. She's like the emotional part of the show, I mm. think. She's the heart of the show. And Alexander Hamilton and a lot of the male characters are like the... Uh, 
extra wordy telling the story part of the show. So, yeah. And what's it like to play the role, uh, especially as I'm sure performing in Broadway uh, as one of the lead characters would have been something you've always dreamed about? I mean, I this is my third week playing Eliza, so I'm just riding on a high. I'm so <laughs> happy to be here. I've worked really hard for the last decade or so. This is my third Broadway show, but it's my first playing a principal. Um, and she just fits, the character just kind of fits me just right. Vocally, emotionally, it's really, really challenging. I don't want to spoil things for you, but Eliza has a very intense emotional journey, especially in act two. And so it's been an honor to tell her story of a woman who is so emotionally intelligent and strong. And there would be no Hamilton today without Eliza Hamilton, because she was the one who carried on his legacy and um, made sure that we all know who he is today. We saw on your social media that you commented that uh, you're able to inspire little Korean or Asian girls who never saw themselves on stage through mm -hmm. the character Eliza. Is that uh, issue of uh, representation something that you've always been aware of and important to you? Absolutely. I mean, Hamilton was the first show on Broadway that... Uh, cast mostly non-white actors as the roles and specifically for the characters that are actually historically white, right? And so growing up and, and even like majoring in musical theater, I came to the industry already limiting myself because I'd never seen, <laughs> I'd never seen anyone like me playing a role that wasn't just written for an Asian woman. So I thought I could only play roles in King and I or Miss Saigon or Flower Drum Song and I didn't even think that it was possible for me to play anything else in the whole vast <laughs> um, array of musicals and so Hamilton was the first time I thought oh I could actually play any of those roles and it really opened up my eyes and I am so excited that it has you know it's still a, an issue I still think there needs to be a lot more diversity both on stage, behind the camera, you know, in the writing room, in the producing room, you know, there just needs to be more people to um, represent art. Like art is a representation of our world and sure. we need more, you know, different kinds of people representing us. And uh, I'm very, I'm just, I'm just so if I got to see myself at a young age on Broadway, I would have thought very differently about my career as a young girl. Indeed, and it must be exciting to be performing in front of uh, uh, big crowds as well, especially after everything we went through over the last uh, three years with COVID-19. Uh, that was when you oh, yeah. uh, formed your uh, group, uh, Saffron Nips, with your partner as well, right? Voltaire Wade Green? Sure, yeah. So the pandemic was a strange blessing in disguise because uh, Voltaire Wade Green, my partner, he is also a Broadway actor. He was actually in the original cast of Hamilton. Um, but both of us, we are so lucky to say, have kind of non-stopped working, <laughs> which is nice. Um, it's a luxury, but because of that, we never got to dive into this other interest that we've always had in our lives. I've always wanted to be a recording artist. I've always wanted to write my own music, but 
it takes a lot of time to be a beginner and to start and to, you know, take all the classes. And so the pandemic gave us this time to pursue what we thought was just a hobby at first, um, just making music together. And the more we did it, the more time we spent on it. We took a bunch of classes and it ended up being our main focus throughout the pandemic. Um, and the, the more we did it, the more we're like, oh, this is good. This is really good music. This is actually, <laughs> this is, you know, if I may say so myself, this is quite um, individual and I haven't heard anything like it. And so we finally just pursued this separate dream that we've always kind of had in our lives and finally had the time to do. Sure. Is that something you think you're going to continue to explore alongside your uh, musical theatre career? Yes, definitely, definitely. It's it's taken a bit of a pause just because there's been so much happening in my in both of our theater careers actually. But we're so eager to get back in it. We're so excited to get back in the room and uh, behind the mic and behind the you know the DAW, the Logic Pro. We're just, we're we're eager. We're very eager. <laughs> Fantastic. So there's more we can look forward to then. Okay, and finally, uh, I know you've just uh, taken on the role of Eliza and you're sure you're just enjoying your time in Broadway at the moment, but I understand that there could be an Asia tour of Hamilton and that uh, it could be coming to South Korea as well. Uh, Would you possibly be coming to South Korea as well then? Look, if if I... It's not in my hands and uh, this Asia tour right now... I don't even know if it's been announced. So you guys are getting some secret intel. Yeah. <laughs> okay. But all I know is <laughs> all I know is that if I am allowed to, then I would definitely love to come and play Eliza in, in Korea. It would be such a dream come true um, if if the cards work out. Sure, and it'd be a treat for Korea musical fans as well to see you uh, perform in Korea, I think. And if you do, uh, we'd love to invite you back on this show uh, and to speak about your time here. Absolutely. Well, we're going to have to leave it there. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk with you today. We've been talking to Stephanie J. Park playing Eliza in Hamilton on Broadway. Thank you once again for your time today. Thank you so much. Have a great day. This is Swiss flutist Philipp Jund. I am professor of flute at Neuchâtel Conservatory in Switzerland and at Kangam University in Korea. You are listening to Korea 24. We've reached our closing segment now, Morning Edition Preview, where we take a look at some interesting features or reports coming out in tomorrow's newspapers, namely the Korea Times and the Korea Herald. And for that, our staff editor, Richard Larkin, is here with us once again. Richard, hello. It's good to see you. Hello. Good to see you too. Okay. So what is the first story that you have for us today? First, we have some information about interesting collaborations. It comes from Dong Sunhwa's article in the Entertainment and Arts section of the Korea Times. Apparently, the K-pop girl groups The Seraphim and I've have joined forces with novelists to create concept albums. Okay, so it is usual for groups to try something different, uh, right. especially when it comes to things like fashion, music videos and more. But mm-hmm. uh, literature is uh, not an area that is uh, ventured down often, is it? Not really, but it is an interesting idea. First, let's look at The Seraphim. They teamed up with Kim Cho-yup, 
a writer known for a best-selling 2021 science fiction novel, Greenhouse at the End of the Earth. The idea was for the writer to make a prologue for Crimson Heart. This is a fictional story that features the group's members. The article mentions that the story was actually included in the group's second mini-album, Anti-Fragile, which was released on October 17th. Kim said she accepted the collaboration because of the concept the group's agency, Ive, Hive, gave her. She liked that the story was about girls. Mm, interesting. OK. And you mentioned that uh, Ive have also had a collaboration with a novelist. Can you tell us about that? Well, in August this year, novelist Chung Se-rang teamed up with Ive for its third single, After Like. Chung created some lines for its members to narrate in a teaser video called Ive Summer Film. It did pretty well, getting more than 1.7 million views on YouTube. Mm, OK. Does the article give any information then in, on if these experiments actually work? Well, in the article, Ko Jong-min, a professor at Hong University's Graduate School of Arts and Cultural Management, shared his thoughts. He said that K-pop stars can grab public attention because even non-fans are likely to think that their albums are worth buying because they feature some literary elements in addition to music. Mm. When talking about the novelists, he mentioned that they have the opportunity to raise their profile and promote their writing thanks to the global clout of K-pop. Right, so hopefully it's a win-win sort of situation. Yes. It's an interesting collaboration nonetheless. OK, let's move on to our second topic. What do you have for us? Next is an article from the Life and Style section of the Korea Herald. It comes from Hwan Dong-hee and talks about a different type of creative project to the one we just talked about. According to the Cultural Heritage Administration, a web drama series titled The Untold Story will be released on Wednesday and it will be set in two UNESCO heritage sites. OK, so which UNESCO heritage sites are we talking about? Hahui Folk Village in Andong and Yangdong Folk Village. Apparently, they are the two largest and most well-preserved Joseon-era villages. They were registered as UNESCO's World Heritage Sites in 2010. According to the article, Andong Hahui Village is the setting for the three-part mystery, The Magic Story, which revolves around a boy who discovers an old book that holds a secret related to the village. The other three parts, named Time Walkers, is set in Yangdong Folk Village and depict the story of villagers who can time travel freely. OK, some interesting concepts there. Is it the <laughs> first time then that the Cultural, Cultural Heritage Administration have made a series like this? Well, it's not. The CHA released its first web drama series, The 300-Year-Old Class of 2020, in December 2020. The sites used for the story were Nine So On, or Confucian Academies. For the upcoming series, it will be available on the CHA's official YouTube channel, Naver TV and Kako TV. It also offers subtitles in eight languages, English, Chinese, Japanese, Arabic, French, Spanish, Malay and Vietnamese. OK, we'll wrap it up there for Morning Edition Preview. Thank you for those stories, Richard, and we'll see you next time. Thank you. And that's where we wrap up our show today. Thank you for staying with us. We'll be back same time tomorrow. So do join us again then for more news, views and reviews from Korea. Till then, we hope you have a great day. I've been your host, Kwon jang And thank you, as always, for listening. Goodbye.
KBS World Radio.